We good, Rob? Okay. Good morning to everyone here. Another beautiful Sunday. Boy, wow. Gorgeous. I was outside about quarter to six this morning. Just I wanted to uh, get some fresh air and uh, just look around. I was looking at the flowers that have come around right now that are starting to bloom and just the life that thinking that the life that God has created, not only in us, but all around us, the earth is teeming with life, you know? And it, uh, I remember it was in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah is, is before the Lord and he sees the Lord seated on his throne and he hears the seraphim singing, you know, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I was looking at that this morning. I was, I was amazed. I, had, I have a perennial garden in one part of the yard. And about two years ago, I mean, it had been there for 15 years ago, I put it in and the plants were doing wonderful. And over the wintertime, I don't know if you're ever familiar with little creatures called voles, but they're like moles, only they don't make the mounds, but they make holes under. And they love plant roots. They love to nibble at plant roots. And that spring, it was last year, I believe, I don't see anything like starting to come to life. It's April already, and most of them are already showing good signs of life. And I, uh, I'm looking at the plants, and all of a sudden I'm touching them, and they're falling over. And I'm looking, there's the top and the stem, but there's no roots. They ate all the roots off of them. And, uh, and within the past year, what we did is basically just left it pretty much there were a couple of plants left and let them go to seed and the whole garden right now is filled with things like flocks uh fox gloves and columbines they just we let them go to seed, and they've just it's retaken and god has like replanted and it's the most beautiful the colors just we basically i did nothing except just tend the soil and let the plants multiply themselves Within two years, it's, it's, it's truly amazing that that life that God creates, you know, whether it's in human beings that were created in his own image or whether it's, it's plant life, animal life, it's, it's amazing. He's an amazing God. It just reminded me of that this morning. Early in the morning, it was quiet, and I'm looking at all these beautiful pictures of life. Well, we're about to start a series. Uh, I was asked, by the elder board if I would do a series for maybe six or eight weeks or so and take a book of the Bible. So I chose 1 John because it's not a lengthy, lengthy uh, epistle, uh, only five chapters, but I'll try to cover it as much as I can. We, we could, honestly, today in just this first little the prologue, we could spend probably six or eight weeks. But I'm going to try to give you an overview of the book, some of the themes of the book, the reason why he wrote that, and hopefully you'll get an overall picture of it. But before we start in 1 John, I want to read you something first. And I'd like you just to listen. This was written probably about 35 years before John wrote his epistle, 1 John. It's believed that probably John wrote most of his writings, the gospel, there's, there's always a question by some who question, but the majority of scholars believe it's probably between 85 and 95 A.D. 
where he wrote the Gospel plus 1, 2, 3 John. And then Revelation was probably in 96. Because uh, it's amazing, we have, we have letters from the early church fathers. And this one uh, church father, Papias, is writing in a letter. And they have these, these uh, you know, copies of these letters. And he's saying, yes, well, he says, toward the, the, the last, the end of uh, Domitian's reign, he was the emperor during 84 to 96 in Rome. And he, he says, to the effect, he says, John wrote his revelation that was given to him. So we have the, the outside, the sources that are outside of the books themselves. We have so much evidence and uh, facts to kind of put these things together, it's, it's, it's truly amazing, it is. Well, this is something the Apostle Paul spoke to the church at Ephesus. And very prophetic. When he says this to the Ephesian church, he's giving his farewell in the book of Acts to the church. He's leaving them. And as he speaks these things, it's absolutely prophetic Within 35 years or so, these things were all coming true, what John is writing about. And they were actually coming true before that, but even as John writes what we're looking at today. Paul says, Now I know that none of you among, uh, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now he's talking to the elders of the church, the shepherds of the church. Elders are shepherds. They're like the pastor is kind of the chief shepherd of the church. And naturally Jesus is the shepherd of the church. But these men, are their duties are to be shepherds. And he's writing to them and he says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I like that, the whole will of God. Not just parts of it, the whole deal. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now listen, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. He says that savage wolves are going to come in. And what's even worse is he says, from among yourselves, right from among the church. Sometimes the greatest danger to the church is inside of the church. You know, we, we seem to think it's always the world we have to worry about, you know, the world of flesh and the devil, but the flesh that's inside the church many times is what causes some of the greatest heresies and greatest problems in the body of Christ. Now, Paul wrote this probably about 35 years before John writes his first epistle. And why did I start with that? Well, the reason John wrote this epistle was why many of the other letters in the New Testament were written. Because of heresies that were taking place. He was addressing, and one of the things that John is going to do is address the heresy 
of the beginnings, not Gnosticism, but the beginnings of Gnosticism. Because this belief system called Gnosticism was a cult. This cult, I'm going to call it, called Gnosticism, really was mature and full-blown in the second and third century of the church. And it deeply hurt the church and affected the church. And basically what it was, it's a very complex system and there's many parts to it. But overall, if we would describe it, the idea of of Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And what it was about is that there was a special group of people that had special knowledge. And if you wanted to be saved, you had to have that special knowledge from them. Very... uh, it was kind of a very uh, a class system almost, you know, of the elites. There was this elite group that they were the informed. They had the knowledge, and you had to come to them to get that knowledge. Sounds familiar in some, uh, some groups, doesn't it? Uh, and then there was even the group that had secret knowledge. Those, were, those are the ones that wear the real tall hats. Uh, they had secret knowledge, and they... You know, they were even above everybody else. But if you didn't have that knowledge, you couldn't be saved because the, the atoning work of Christ on the cross wasn't enough. You weren't saved by that. You were saved by knowing the right things. And it infected the church. Now, before it took really solid hold and really matured into the full-blown Gnosticism itself, in John's writings here as he's writing, you're going to see that throughout. He's addressing issues, and one of them was called docetism. Docetism was the belief that Jesus really wasn't human, that he didn't have a physical body. He appeared to have a physical body. He was more like a phantom, you could say. In other words, he looked like a man. He gave the impression of a man, but... If, in fact, the stories tell like if he walked along the sand, there would be no footprints because he wasn't a physical being. He was actually, he just looked like a physical being. Now, all of these types of beliefs, and I'm not trying, I don't want to give you too much of this, to, but it's important that it's based upon what's called dualism. The idea is that matter is evil. Spirit is good. So anything spiritual is good. Anything that is physical, that has matter or substance to it, is evil. In fact, the Greeks, their greatest idea of freedom and salvation was to be released from the body. That was their idea. So we could become spirit and we would be good and not evil. But with that came beliefs along the ideas that since matter is evil, there's really no such thing as sin because there's, there's no such thing as breaking laws. It's just what matter does. Physical bodies do bad stuff. They're evil. So how do you, how do you, make, how do you classify it as sin when the body's doing what it does, they say, like that. Now, the, on the other hand, at the same time, was a group called... Uh, Serinthianism. And Serinthianism was named after Serinthius. And, and the idea of that was is that Jesus, the man, 
was not really divine. Of course, we believe Jesus is fully humanity, fully divinity. But what they believed during that time was that Jesus was a man, and at his baptism, the, uh, can I say, the God Jesus, the divine, divine Jesus, came into him, and before he was crucified, he left. So, that the atonement is no good then, in a sense. When we go through, because when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't ultimately God taking our sins upon us. He was just a man. Any of us, in fact, that happened. I remember reading an account of it down in South America. A man some years ago wanted to be crucified for the sins of the people. And they actually crucified him. That was his request. I want to be crucified. And he said he died for the sins of the, the town. Didn't do anything. He died. Didn't cover anybody's sin. You know, that's only the supernatural work of Jesus, the God-man, that can do that, of atonement that actually forgives sins and fills us with his righteousness afterwards. So, anyway, this is kind of the scene that's taking place, as John writes. So, it's, these heresies are starting to really get embedded in the church now. And it's creating, have, and it's really nothing new if you think about it. Book of Galatians was probably written about 48 or 49. There's another theory that it might have been written 56, 57, around there. But most scholars say it was written in 49, 48, when he writes to the Galatian church. And think about the Galatian church, what Paul says. In fact, I just want to read you one little part of it. I wasn't going to, but I'd rather just read the scripture right to you here. This is the beginning of his letter. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And then he says, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Imagine Paul, the, the love and passion that he has. He says, if you mess with the gospel, basically what he's saying, go to hell. That's what he was saying. That may you be condemned eternally. May you end up in hell forever. It's a hard thing to think, the apostle Paul? I mean, who shows such compassion and love to the churches and so self-sacrificing. And yet, because it's such a crucial issue, he says, when you start messing with the gospel, he says, may the worst come to you because you're, can, you're in the end leading people down that nice broad, you know, the broad gate, the wide road, right to destruction. So this is kind of the setting that's taken place here. And just to give you an idea, Galatians was written within 20 years of the crucifixion. Can you imagine Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, ascends to heaven, the day of Pentecost comes afterwards, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're out preaching the word, and 20 years later, a church 
is caught up in heresies. One thing we have to remember right from the very beginning, along with the truth, are lies. It started in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? Think of chapter 3. You know, God gives them one command and gives them... I always like to picture the Garden of Eden as the Lord basically said he put them in a hotel complex that was like, you know, a thousand acres. There were a billion rooms in this hotel. And he says, you can go in any room you want. Every day you can switch a room and stay in a different room. He says, the only room I don't want you to go in is room 4,563. Don't ever open that door. You have the other billion to go to. And what do they do? Let's go to 4,563. Why? What's in there? You know, it's, it's what, what was taking place in, in the churches is that instead of following the truth, they were being sucked into lies. And it's right from the beginning when Satan says to Adam and Eve, did God really say that? Are you sure God, God said not to eat from that? Nah, that's not too bad. You know, right, it was an attack on the truth right at the beginning of the Bible and throughout the Bible, it continues that way. Right as we read about 1 John now, all the heresies that are taking place. So with that, no further ado, let's start 1 John. Now, John is writing here, but I'd like us just to pray first before we start, okay? Father, please help us to hear your word, to speak your word, Lord, and to truly take in, Lord, that it would Today, these words would get in our bloodstream, Lord. They would be part of us. Please help each one to, Lord, to be focused, to hear. Please help me to be focused and to speak only your truth. And Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. Let's begin. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also, you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. 
Think of Genesis. In the beginning was the word. I'm sorry. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John begins his gospel with, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He makes it clear that Jesus Christ, the Logos, the Word of God, was there before there was anything, before the beginning, and he was with God. Actually, in the Greek, it means that the Father and Jesus were looking at each other face to face. They were right in company, right close to one another there, like that. John begins his first epistle with that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim the, concerning the word of life. What a statement that is. You know, when you, you question, if you have questions about your faith, is it real? Did it really happen? Here's a man in history 2,000 years ago, by the way, who put his life on the line. His other uh, ten companions, Judas had already perished, but the ten other apostles, by this period when he writes this, had all lost their lives as martyrs. They were all martyred. John is the only one that we know that wasn't martyred. And actually at one point, uh, the tradition of the church fathers who are very accurate said that they tried to boil John once in a pot of oil but they weren't successful somehow he survived is a crusty old guy boy he was tough you know and he managed to survive but then John ends up probably uh, in the early 90s he ends up on the Isle of Patmos, and he says why. Now imagine, he's in his 80s at this point. It's, a, it's 95 A.D., he's on the island of, uh, 96 A.D., he's on the Isle of Patmos. And he says in the beginning, he says, he was on the Isle of Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. The reason he got shipped to this island, which is about 50 or 60 miles off, the coast right opposite of Ephesus there why he's on this little five by eight nine island mile island is because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ John at that age is ministering and according to the church fathers John probably what what happened after Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70 John kind of set, set out in Ephesus and stayed there as an elder. And he was shepherding people. He was talking about Christ. He was witnessing for Christ. Giving. And think of the authority. John was the only apostle who could say, there was the only apostle left, a man who could say, I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. What a powerful testimony that is. And why would he say these things? Because he could have been martyred at that point. 
you said the other re the reason why the other apostles were all martyred is because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So why would you bother putting yourself through that? Because he saw something, he heard something, he touched something. He knew Jesus Christ and he knew him as the God man. That can you imagine when John heard Jesus talk? He was listening to God, the audible voice of God speaking, the God man. When he saw Jesus, his eyes were looking at God incarnate. When Jesus came over to him and said, John, or when he was resting his head on Jesus' breast, he was touching God. That's amazing. And now this guy who has those experiences says that we have seen him with our eyes. We have looked and our hands have touched. He says, this we proclaim concerning the word of God. Three times he's going to say, we proclaim here, by the way, in this little spot. If you look, he says, this we proclaim. That's in verse 1. And then uh, down where does he say? In verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. He says it again. Um, it's, just, it's just amazing. And, and he, he goes through that. He keeps emphasizing that. We've seen him. We've heard him. You want to know if the Bible is true? If the Bible is accurate? Well, think about this. He's giving his eyewitness account. If you were in a courtroom and they called you up to the stand, you were in a murder trial, and you had witnessed something, and they said, tell us, did you see when so-and-so was shot? Yes, I did. Did you see the person who shot him? And you said, yes, I did. Is that person in the courtroom? Would you point to him? And I go, Nick Camelloni. <laughs> it's you. But, you know, and how powerful is that in our judicial system? Man, you have an eyewitness seeing you pull the trigger? You're in big trouble you're in deep weeds at that point here's a man who's saying i saw him i heard him i touched him i was with him for three years how powerful is that especially when by saying that he could have lost his life it's what the argument used to be it's hard enough to to stand up for the truth when you're in danger but why would he stand up for a lie? Why would he put his neck on the chopping block because of some fantasy? That would be insane. But he knew he saw something and he experienced something that was worth putting everything on the line for. And he was going to talk about it. And he wasn't going to keep quiet. In Acts, they said that we must speak about these things, the apostles said when the Pharisees were getting on their cases. You know, you guys got to stop talking. We can't stop talking about this. We're going to continue. And they went out and they started, they started witnessing again for this. What, what zeal, what power is in that? You know, the church needs that today. We need to, to 
get back to say, this is the truth and my faith is in it. Everything, I'm putting, you know, all my eggs are in this basket here. You know, and it's worth it. It's absolutely worth it. And he says, concerning the word of life, that's my, what was coming to me this morning when I was even looking at the flowers. You know, he's talking about the word of life, the source of life, the source of eternal life. But yet, I'm looking at and I'm thinking, even the source of life for these beautiful flowers, you know, it's God who makes them grow. You know, just like the gospel. And Paul said, right, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made them grow. God takes faith and makes it grow, and he makes the plants grow too. They're beautiful like that. Verse 2, he says, the life appeared. Christ is the source of all life. In fact, something just I wanna, came to my mind. I want to read this to you real quick. When John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He says that all things were made by him, and nothing that was made was made without him. He's the source of life. Think what kind of power are we talking about in the beginning? You know, when you get in the beginning, God created. What is the creative act? I think it was St. Augustine that used to call it by divine fiat, he used to say. By his divine command from his method, the divine imperative. He said it, it could not not happen, to use a double negative there. It has to happen when God says, let there be, there's no choice. It must take place. There is no, uh, well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Bam, that's it. Okay, the life appeared, the source of all life, the creator of life. We have seen it and we testify to it. There's, he's in court and he's going, it's Jesus. He's pointing it out. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, that's Jesus, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Again, he's reinforcing that. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Why? Why is he doing this? So that you also may have fellowship with us. He says, we have experienced Christ. We now have eternal life. We have joy. We have peace. We have the Holy Spirit in us. And you know what? That's what we want for you. We want to share this. We want to have fellowship with you. That means that we're sharing. That fellowship is that koinonia. Sometimes koinonia can mean partnership. There's so many definitions. It's a very variable word. It can mean a common sharing of something or, 
or like I said, a partnership. He says, we want you to be partners. He's not talking about financial deals or anything. He's talking about having union with Christ, that we are all one. He says, we want you to know what we have, and we want to give it to you. We want to give you the way that you can do that. He says, that you have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, maybe some of your versions have, we write this to make your joy complete. But it's a win-win situation, however it's translated. You're going to make our joy complete by being in union with Christ and with the Father. And your joy complete is you're going to experience this. So either way, it's all about the people knowing Jesus Christ. And John, it's, it's funny because he, he has three things that he uh, talks about here when he says, we write this. Now, uh, look at chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Okay, and he's going to do, what he's going to do is he wants, first he says, I want you to experience the joy and it'll give us joy to know that you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and you're in fellowship with him. But then secondly, he says, my dear child, I write this so that you will not sin and we'll, we'll look at that another time. But the idea is fellowship because when you sin, you break your fellowship with God. But when you're not in sin, and again, everybody has sin, of course. We're not talking about sinful perfection. We're talking about a way of life that is seeking to be obedient to God. He says that I write this so that you will not sin. And if they don't sin, they're going to be, it's all about fellowship. And then look at chapter 5. And verse 13. John gives three reasons why he writes this epistle. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's that assurance. He's saying, I want you to know that you're saved eternally. That you don't have to worry about, you know, one day, you know, you're, you're driving your cart, you know, to the market here, these people, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, a guy cuts you off with his donkey and you start cursing at him for a minute and go, oh, and then you have a heart attack and die. And it's like, you know, you go to the pearly gates and Jesus says, I'm sorry, but you were angry. You hate your brother. You're going to hell. No, of course not. But when I was first saved, I, I was afraid of that. You know, I didn't know what eternal security was. I didn't understand what it meant when you're saved and you have eternal life. It's eternal. It's forever. You know, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't go according to moment by moment. What a way to live. You talk about li- walk, you know, your Christian walk be on eggshells, literally. You know, it'd be horrible. Almost be like, think of the Pharisees, you know, having 24 chapters to the Mishnah devoted for how do I, ob- uh, how do I observe the Sabbath and every minute, you know, you, you wash your hands and, it, you forget and you rub it. And it's like, oh, I just worked. I just cleaned the floor. And these are like some of the rules that they have. That's horrible. Every moment. You can't. That's not peace. That's not joy. That's living in fear constantly. It's what Martin Luther lived like. 
You know, he was always afraid God was angry at him, and any minute he was going to lash out at Luther until he found out, you know, from Romans 1.17 what it meant, you know, to have true righteousness of Christ in you by faith. It's all about faith in God, the grace of God and the faith of God, not how I'm performing every minute. We're not performance-based Christians. The performance is based, but it's on what Christ did. It's his performance, his work, his perfect work, not ours. You know, we make the messes, you know, and, oh, and his blood covers that, thank God. Okay, let me move on here. I'll do a little bit more, and then we'll stop. I didn't get as far as I wanted, but we'll see. Okay. Then John says, this is the message we have heard from him. That's Jesus and declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Okay. Notice he says, this is the message we have heard from him. Now you might say, I don't remember seeing in the Gospels, Jesus said, you know, God is light. Okay, but remember something. The Gospels are not the full, comprehensive, you know, uh, books on everything Jesus ever said. We have tiny, minute, in fact, John in his gospel, right? At the end of the gospel, chapter 21, he says, you know, and Jesus did many more things than this, he says, but if, you know, we were to write them all down, he says, there wouldn't be enough, uh, there wouldn't be enough space on the whole earth to fill all these books, to put them somewhere. He said, Jesus did countless, countless, and miracles and things that we heard but the gospels give us what we need not every single thing he said so you know because some people look and say how come it's not in the gospel he said he's saying jesus said this because we don't have everything jesus said but we have everything we need for salvation and to have a relationship with him so this is the message we have heard and notice go back to verse one that which was from the beginning which we have heard now he's telling us what he heard. He says, we, this is the message we heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness uh, at all. The idea of light is the idea of what is good, what is pure, what is holy. The idea of darkness is what is evil, sin. In a sense, darkness represents sin and light represents the purity, the holiness of God, basically. So he says, in him there is no darkness at all. Jesus, you know, is pure. There is no sin. He's the sinless one. If he had sin, his sacrifice wouldn't have been any good. He needed to be sinless in order to die for our sins. He says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, Yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Powerful statement. If we claim to have fellowship with him, if we say, I'm a Christian, and yet we're walking in darkness, we're walking like the world in a sense, we're not, we're not living a, a life that's God-honoring. We're living a life that's in constant, all types of habitual sins. We really need to question that. We really should. Because you can't, 
be saved and yet be living like the devil. There's one thing. That's why I'm very cautious about when people say, I just accepted Jesus Christ. Okay, I want to see them in six months. And I want to know how they're living. If their life is changed, then I'll start to have confidence in that. But sometimes you can be emotional, you know, and be at a meeting and, and the emotion's building and all of a sudden you say, oh, I need Jesus, yes. And you go, Jesus, come into my heart. But it's more than that. Yes, it's faith in Christ that we're born again, but there's also repentance. And it's the grace of God in our heart working which the conviction comes. And without God's grace, we, I can't make that decision. It has to be the grace of God first for me. And so the proof of somebody being converted is a changed life. Your life has to be changed. If you're living the same way when you first came to Christ, I would go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, when Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know that God's Spirit is in you? We, unless he says, unless, of course, you fail the test. You know, Paul would tell them, examine yourselves. It's a good thing for us to examine. We should continually be taking inventory on our lives. Not because we're afraid we're not saved, but to see, how am I living? How am I honoring God by doing it? Am I walking in the light? Or is my, God, uh, is my life dishonoring God at times by sinning? No. We're called to be sanctified, set apart, holy. That's to honor God, ultimately. He says, if, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. You can't... There has to be... The, the acts of our lives have to correspond to what we say we believe. But if we walk in the light, and the idea of, of walking in the light is the idea of being open to being open to the truth of God and, and, and submitting to that. Uh, it's, it's not the idea of, of sinless perfection here when he says this. It's, it's being open and, I'm going to say, being responsive to the Word of God. You know, when we're walking in the light, we're open to it and we're responsive to it. We're responding and living correctly at that point. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And I, I want to make it just a point here, and I'm going to get ready to wrap it up. He says, we have fellowship with one another. He's not talking about other Christians here. The way the sentence structure is, he's talking about fellowship with Jesus and his, the Father. So he's saying... If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That means we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we, 
Here, it tells us that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all unsin. So if we weren't sinning, we wouldn't need the blood of Christ. But we need the blood of Christ to continually forgive us, purify us like that. It's the ongoing relationship. He says we, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a great verse. And by the way, this verse is abused by evangelists many times for a salvation call. Come on up. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. No, he's writing to the church. The same way in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 20. Many times I'll hear evangelists say, here I am, I stand and knock at the door. If anyone opens the door, who's he writing to? The church that had pulled away from him. It's not a call to salvation. It's a call to get right with fellowship with God. It's to come back to fellowship. And this is the same type of verse here, what he's given us. He says, if we confess our sins as believers, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, but he doesn't only forgive us. He says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We can, may confess at times our sin, but that doesn't mean we're aware of every sin that we have. And he gives us a total cleansing. It's not like God says, okay, I'll cleanse 50% of you today, and then 50% not. When we're, in a, when we're openly confessing to God our sins, he covers all our sin for us. Like that. Uh, I can't help think of, you know, what a blessing confession and repentance are. What gifts of grace to us. I, I, I want to read you something here. Because I, I, I just don't want to give you a couple verses. And I want to... Remember when David had tried to uh, hide his sin with Bathsheba and he had committed adultery and then he conspired the murder of her husband Uriah and then for almost a year we believe he kept it from the people he he was hiding his sin he thought listen to what David says here in Psalm 32 blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. He's honest about it. He's not holding back with trying to cover up his sin. Listen, verse 3, I love this. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. You know, that's so descriptive, that's so good. To the core of my frame. He's right to the framework of my body. He says, I felt like I was rotting away in there. He's holding in his sin for a year. And it must have just been like rotting inside of him. You know, horrible. And he says, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. He says, oh God, you wouldn't let up on me. You just kept putting the pressure on me. I wouldn't repent, and you just kept the pressure. I was feeling the weight of guilt. It was unbearable. 
Then look, then I acknowledged my sin to you, he says, and did not cover up my iniquity. I stopped cheating and trying to pretend that it didn't happen. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. He just took that from him. As horrible as those sins were, adultery, murder, cover-up, God forgave him. That includes everything we've ever thought of, everything we've done. For women who have had abortions, they confess, they come to Christ. They're forgiven. New life. You know, it's, they're not, we're not, God doesn't put a scarlet letter on us and make us wear that right to the pit of hell. You know, he pulls away our guilt, he takes our guilt, he cleanses us, you know, and gives us hope. I, I can't imagine, you know, if we didn't have, <laughs> well, I can't imagine actually, it'd be awful, if we couldn't confess. You know, we've got one verse left. Let me just do it and I'll be done with the first chapter if you don't mind. And he says he would purify us from all unrighteousness. Just thank God that we can be forgiven. We're a forgiven people. We're a cleansed people. I like when Paul, uh, I think it was in 1 Corinthians, maybe chapter 5, where he, he's talking to the people and he lists all these different sins, you know, murder, jealousy, you know, homosexuality, he says, and all these types of sins. And then he says, and that's what some of you were, he says. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, you know, oh, by the name of, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. He says, all those sins, he said to those people, he says, you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. What a wonderful hope we have in that. We're a forgiven people. Then he says, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And rightly so, because the Lord is constantly offering forgiveness to us for our sins. And obviously, if we say, oh, I don't have any sin, <laughs> he says, and his word has no place in our lives. If we claim to be without sin, we're either the biggest liar or else we're so out of it, we can't see our sin. And at that point, I'd say we're not saved. At that point, oh, the... I'm going to end with that. There's more I'd like to say, but that's another story for another time. And uh, I would encourage you to read through 1 John. It's five chapters. Get familiar with it. Get familiar and see the issues that he's speaking about and he's addressing are also against these heresies. He's making it clear Jesus Christ was a man in the flesh and also God, that he could do these things for us. We, I'll end with, we, we have an incredible God. We have an incredible gift that we've been given. Do we really appreciate it? Do we really, 
understand or appreciate what God has done for us. <laughs> we are the richest people in the world. You know, what does, what does all the money, all the toys, all the entertainment, we're big in entertainment today, every one concert to the next and this one and that one, and what does it mean? You know, it's garbage. It, ultimately, it's garbage. When you look at the eternal perspective of things, I don't know why, this silly joke just came into my head, but it really describes, I think, the ridiculousness of what I was, you know, trying to say. There were these two guys, and they're walking past the, the uh, cemetery, and there's a crane, and it's lowering this beautiful Cadillac convertible, and the corpse is sitting, they prop them up behind like that, and they got a big stogie in his mouth, and they put the whiskey bottle next to him, and... They're lowering him in the grave. There was a giant grave to bury him in the car together. And the one guy looks at the other and he says, do you see that? And the guy goes, yeah, he says, man, that's living. You know, it's like, I mean, that's basically, it means nothing. It means nothing. And we have this, uh, gee, I thought I'd get a better response than that. I, I wouldn't have bothered telling. Can't, take that off the tape. Don't, don't, I didn't like that response. That wasn't good. Uh, but anyway, uh, Think about, please think about what Christ has done for us and what we have in him. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. And we possess it. And spend as much time with, you, with him in the word. Open the word and spend time with him and listen to what he's saying. And you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have given us in Christ, Lord. Help us to really hunger and thirst for the truth that you offer us, Lord. Help us to see that there is no life apart from you, Lord. It is just wasted time. Lord, help us to really grasp this salvation that you have given us in a way that would affect the way we live, Lord, in deep ways. I know it has, but even in deeper ways, Lord, that we, like John, would want to make our joy complete by sharing the truth with others. Give us a burden, Lord, for those who are on a road to hell, that are on that wide and broad path. And Lord, let's... See if we can help them with your grace and your spirit. Help direct them to the narrow path that they would find life and light and goodness in you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.